hppodcraft.com. A considerable number of hunting parties were out that year, without finding so much as a fresh trail, for the moose were uncommonly shy, and the various nimrods returned to the bosoms of their respective families with the best excuses the facts of their imaginations could suggest. Dr. Cathcart, among others, came back without a trophy, but he brought instead the memory of an experience which he declares was worth all the bull moose that had ever been shot. But then Cathcart of Aberdeen was interested in other things besides moose, amongst them the vagaries of the human mind. This particular story, however, found no mention in his book on collective hallucination, for the simple reason, so he confided once to a fellow colleague, that he himself played too intimate a part in it to form a competent judgment of the affair as a whole. That was the opening paragraph from Algernon Blackwood's The Wendigo. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we're returning with our amazing reader and cohort, Andrew Lehman. Yes, Andrew's back to read this story, which I've been looking forward to doing for about a year. I think it was almost a year ago that we covered The Willows, yeah. uh, also by Algernon Blackwood. And I still hear people talking about those shows because we kind of had a difference of opinion we did. On uh, liking or disliking this one. And, and I think you feel a little differently about this story. I do. I actually, I really enjoyed the Wendigo. Okay, good. Because I like this one too. But before we get into the story mm-hmm. and dive into all that business, we had some sponsors for this week. We do. We have two Kickstarters that are, are sponsoring us right now. So why don't you go check out Randolph Carter web series called The Dream Cycle of Randolph Carter. And this is by Michael Keane. Now you have to be quick because this ends October 13th. It's the last day. Mm-hmm. And it is modern day setting it has various themes including nihilism being an artist deceptive power of nostalgia all these types of things all thrown in kind of a lovecraftian mix so go there check out the kickstarter pitch we'll have links to it in our site it's called the dream cycle of randolph carter the kickstarter looks pretty interesting so folks can check that out the second kickstarter that's sponsoring us this week is called school number six girl with the dark halo right this is uh, the sixth installment of a gothic horror series Mm -hmm. For comics, it's black and white, and it's about a girl that's a ghost. She's a 12-year-old victim. Her name is Lindsay Buckner, and that ends even sooner, October 8th. Get to the Kickstarter, check it out, watch the video. He explains it very well in there, shows you lots of the art. It's very stylized, creepy, dark. Yeah, those are two things to check out. And if you've got some extra bucks, throw them these artists' ways. Does that, sound, does that make sense? These artists' ways? Throw, th- these th- artists <laughs> ways? throw them some dollars. I mean, it is in the last closing hours of Kickstarters often that they do get that backing. They could use your support. So those are our sponsors for this week. Thanks, guys. And uh, Thank you, guys. I wish you the best of luck in getting your projects off the ground. Now, into the story. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk about the Wendigo a little bit before we, we get into it. Yeah, sure. You know, I you had written in your notes here that you felt like you knew where this story was going from the beginning because you've read The Willows. I thought, do you? I mean... Oh, I didn't. (laughs) I did. (laughs) I thought I knew where it was going and I was mistaken because it it takes some crazy turns and and it's it is very different than The Willows. Obviously, the writing styles is very similar and a lot of the concepts are are also similar, Mm -hmm. but it seems a lot more cinematic to me. And it seems to be rooted more in legends and more in folklore, whereas The Willows was more in the weird fiction tradition where it might have been an alien. You had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Whereas this is more rooted in something specific, which is the Wendigo legend. Let's talk about that. I mean, what's your experience with the Wendigo going in? The first time I ever heard of the Wendigo was in... This was in Marvel Comics. Okay, me too. <laughs> the Hulk fought the Wendigo. When was yours? Well, I picked up a copy of Alpha Flight 
Alpha Flight. Yep. Later on, they brought back the Wendigo with Alpha Flight because Sasquatch, one of those characters, <laughs> this is so lame. I can't believe I'm talking about this. Yeah. Sasquatch uh, would turn into a a Sasquatch. That was his thing. And uh, the pos- <laughs> he got possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo and became evil. <laughs> Wow. Well, I, I just remember I picked up, it was a package of Marvel Comics, and I didn't even know what any of the titles were. And the first one was Alpha Flight. It, the Wendigo was on it, and he was just a big, hairy monster. And then I figured out that it was another name. It was like a Canadian name for the Yeti or Sasquatch or Bigfoot. That's what I always thought it was. Yeah, but it's not. It's like kind of a, an evil spirit that gets into your body. You know, it's a Native American myth. It started with the Algonquin people, but that's like the language. So many different tribes mm-hmm. spoke that. So it's like the Cree and the Nascope and a few other tribes. And the, the legend was that if you ate human flesh, that you would open yourself up to these creatures and you would become an evil monster. It has a lot to do with cannibalism, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing of it. And it, it's a big cultural taboo to obviously almost all cultures to eat other people yeah Uh, but specifically native american culture was a a really big no-no and there was this guy basil johnson he was a a teacher and scholar of native american myths he wrote a a description because he did all this research into this and so this is kind of his because you know it's all word of mouth these people didn't write anything down this is all just so who knows what they really believed but from him piecing together, talking to all these different people, this is what he said. The Windigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into its sockets. The Windigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody, unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh. The Windigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. That sounds to me more like what somebody would look like if they've been out starving in the woods. Yeah. Which probably is why this is linked. I'm, there was this, there's this thing called Wendigo psychosis, which I really think is what this story is jumping off from. Give it to me. It's Well, I, I'm just looking at it from Wikipedia, <laughs> but it was a condition in which somebody, they develop an insatiable desire for human flesh even though there are other food sources available. So there's been some debate whether this is something that actually happened or if it's just mm-hmm. word of mouth. But it was very popular among psychologists in the early 1900s. This story was written in 1910. Uh, right here, I was I just read this this morning, actually. One of the more famous cases of Wendigo psychosis reported involved a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner. During the winter of 1878, Swift Runner and his family were starving and his eldest son died. 25 miles away from emergency food supplies, Swift Runner butchered and ate his wife and five remaining children. Whoa. Given that he resorted to cannibalism so near to food supplies, and that he killed and consumed the remains of all those present, it was revealed that Swift Runner's was not a case of pure cannibalism as a last resort, but rather a man suffering from Wendigo psychosis. Hmm. He eventually confessed and was executed at Fort Saskatchewan. Another case uh, reported here about a guy named Jack Fiddler, who was an OG Cree chief and shaman, known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. This involved euthanizing people sometimes if they had Wendigo psychosis. So he was almost like a witch hunter among his tribe. But in 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph, they were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. 
because they were obviously killing people with those Wendigo psychosis. Mm -hmm. Jack committed suicide. Joseph was later tried and sentenced to life in prison. He was granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news of that pardon. Anyway, so these things are in the news. These things are happening around the time that this story was written, which I wasn't really aware of. So I think that that might have been the the jumping off point for Algernon Blackwood. But there's not really any cannibalism in this story. Well, that's the odd part because it's so wrapped up with this idea of cannibalism. I think in Blackwood's fiction, he makes it more about the spirit of the wilderness and maybe the madness that descends upon us when we find ourselves so insignificant in the face of the the power of nature. Right. Uh, Which is what really connects this to to the Lovecraftian weird fiction. Yeah, but we shouldn't get too deep into that stuff until we've actually talked about the story. (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about the story. It opens up uh, kind of explaining who the the different people are that, you know, our cast of characters. They're out hunting. First of all, this cast of characters are out hunting in the Canadian wilderness. And there's been no moose. They're hunting moose specifically. That's why they're out there and they haven't found anything yet. These people are, there's Dr. Cathcart, who's from Aberdeen, Scotland, he's a writer and a medical guy, mm-hmm. uh, wrote a lot about psychology. So he has a real keen understanding of the human mind. They introduce him in that opening paragraph that we heard, and they the mentions his book on collective hallucination. Right. It was it sort of reminded me of the horror at Martin's Beach, when the guy, the character there had written some article about, can we all suffer from a collective hyp- hypnotism right. or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's mentioned right. that this person has some kind of insight into it. But this, what we're about to hear in the story, he didn't include in the book because he's just too close to it. Yeah. But it's implied that some kind of collective hallucination happened. Yes. Right away. Exactly. Dr. Cathcart's got a relative there, right? Simpson. Simpson, who's his nephew, and he's also doing some kind of religious studies. He's a young guy. We don't really know much about his... I'm not even sure if Simpson's his last name or his first name. I'm not sure either. He just goes by Simpson. The two guides are Hank Davis. He's the guy that's kind of in charge. And then there's this other dude, Joseph Defago. Now, He's a French-Canadian and an outdoorsman, really rugged, but he's also very moody, kind of manic-depressive. Sometimes he really gets... I mean, he sings. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he's that kind of guy. And then the third one who just <laughs> is... <laughs> the third one is the guy that is the cook. Yeah, the Native American. He basically keeps base camp. I thought you would call him Cookie because he cooks, obviously. <laughs> yeah, right. But he, they call him Punk. Yeah, he wears a leather jacket and it's got a little Misfits Crimson Ghost on the back of it. And he just cooks. <laughs> No, I love this cast, though. <laughs> Dr. Cathcart his nephew, yeah. Hank Davis. They make much of Hank Davis's language. You know, he's always cursing. Yeah. And he's free with his oaths. And he speaks. He and DeFago have their friends and they goof on each other and they're always cursing each other out is what I got from this. Yeah. Uh, and Punk is silent, but he carries with him all the superstition of the Native Americans. So this cast kind of ranges in scale from skeptic to mystic. Right. Because we know Dr. Cathcart is set up as this ultra-skeptic. He's the one that believes in the rational world. His nephew is clearly not that way because his nephew is studying to go into clergy. Mm -hmm. So his mind's sort of more open to religious experience. Yeah. And then Hank, Joseph, and Punk all seem to know something about the woods. A lot of the time, they don't want to talk about it. But even amongst those three, it ranges from Hank probably is the more practical. Punk is the silent guy who seems to know everything. And Defago, like I was saying, he's kind of this intense dude, very Mm -hmm. emotional at times. Very quiet at others. They, I think they say imaginative and melancholy. Right. A thing about him is he got worse. He got more melancholy the longer he was in civilization. So he kind of needed to go out to the woods to rejuvenate himself or to give himself sanity. Yeah, he's a man of the land and he's got to get closer to it if he wants to be happy. Yeah. So they take off and they, it says they're way up in the wilderness north of Rat Portage, which is northwestern Ontario. 
Yeah. Huge amount of nature and pretty unspoiled by people. Yeah. Especially at the turn of the, of the last century. Yeah. Our characters, they've been out hunting for a week and still haven't found anything. They decide they need to break out into some new hunting territory. Hank says, we're going to split up. The Doc and Hank are going to go off into one area and mm. Defago and Simpson are going to get in a canoe and go across this lake that they're by. They're going over to an area called 50 Island Water. Exactly. Now, nobody's been over there for a long time and they haven't done much hunting. Once he says that, Defago gets a little, gets a kind of a weird look on his face and everybody notices it. Now, that's a, with Blackwood's writing, it's so much about nuance. Like he can mm-hmm. go on for a page about somebody's facial expression mm-hmm. and what it means to everybody. Even though nothing's said, there's all this emotion that's going on. And when he brings up this place, Defago gets disturbed or angry or afraid. But Hank senses that that's what's going on with mm-hmm. Defago and that everybody else noticed it and says, oh, you don't mind him. He just gets scared he's all superstitious and stuff there was just a fire that was up there last year everything's fine now that's why people don't go up there it's just the fire not because there was monsters or because people disappear no he doesn't say that (laughs) well he does say that he's scared about some old fairy tales fairy tales and then defago gets all up in his face and says hey i'm not scared of nothing we're going (laughs) you're right that uh blackwood can really linger on these small things but he also creates what are some pretty traditional horror beats Right yeah. away. Once they mention 50 Island Water and Defago gets that expression on his face, it's that moment where the townspeople say, oh, don't go up there. He knows something's wrong and he's made everybody else aware of it. They introduce the fact that he's scared about some kind of fairy tale. So it's raising the tension sort of slowly. Now we know there's something bad up there. Yeah, I feel like it's a device to always give the people some kind of culpability too to what they're doing. It's like, oh, they should know not to go up to those places, but they're going mm-hmm. out there anyway. So somebody's responsible for, for what happened. I mean, in most horror films, there, there's a warning of some kind that people yeah. ignore. I mean, these guys aren't really warned so much as that there's some kind of hint of a warning. Right. It's very subtle, but it's still there. And it even yeah. just gets broken up by a, uh, a dramatic horror beat because right when they're talking about this, things are getting quieter. Defago's saying, ah, I'm not I'm not afraid. Don't you forget it. But you can tell he's afraid. Yeah. And then Hank looks around. He's about to tell them something more when Punk shows up and it's very sudden. Yeah. He makes a sound in the darkness and then they they look and it's it's just punk. Yeah. He's just he's there in the circle of the firelight listening. So even those dramatic beats he's putting in here. This starts with a sort of a tone and a description of the wilderness and it quickly starts raising the tension right away. I mean, I think yeah. it's done very well. I know that there's been a film uh, made of this, but I've never seen it. So I can't really comment on it. However, I have seen. Do you remember Ravenous? The Guy Pierce film? Uh, I, I never saw it. You never saw Ravenous? No. Oh my God, it's so good. It's uh, It takes place after the American Civil War at a fort and it, Robert Carlyle shows up. It's all sketchy and, you, you know, basically he, he's a he's a Wendigo. Oh. And it's it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really, it's a really neat. And because it, it all takes place in this Civil War fort in the middle of winter. Oh, I got to see that. And it's pretty much like a vampire story because it's cannibalism as opposed to drinking people's blood. But it's it's really cool, dude. You really got to see it. It's cause it and it's also a, ra- a crazy setting. Like, I never would have thought to set a story or a film in a post-Civil War fort in the middle of winter. Oh, I got I got to check that out. Uh, when you now when you say uh the film that are you talking about the 2001 Wendigo movie? Yeah, isn't it called Wendigo? Yeah, I saw that. It's a it's Larry Fessenden movie. I saw that. Is it based on the story? It's uh based on what the story is about. It's pretty different. As if I recall, it's Jake Weber is a it's a couple that's out in the woods somewhere. They have a there's a kid. Mhm. It's definitely 
not what I expected it to be. I thought there was going to be a Wendigo monster attacking people, right. and it was not that. I couldn't tell you if it was really an adaptation of the story or not. It was definitely more in the weird than in the traditional horror genre. But as you're saying, this story, it, it does feel cinematic, but it it is still very much a weird tale. Oh, yeah, sure. You don't really get any monster in this at all. No. And there's just lots of hints and lots of impressions and feelings, but never really an understanding. And it's anyway, but let's continue on with. What, okay. What well, they at. have this setup where you can tell Defago doesn't want to go out there, but that's what the plan's going to be. They all hit the hay so that they can get ready to travel the next day. Of course, Hank and Defago, they kind of stay up late, cursing at each other, having some kind of discussion. You're not really sure what it's about. Mm-hmm. Punk is hanging out on the corner. He's, you know, Punk's always just around listening, but eventually they even they go to bed and it's dead quiet. But an hour later, when everybody's asleep, Punk gets up and walks down to the shore of the lake quietly. Mm-hmm. And in the story, it says even Hank and Defago, as in league with the uh, soul of the woods as they are, even they probably wouldn't catch wind of what Punk has caught wind of. It's something that only his Indian blood can perceive. <laughs> but he's got those kind of super Indian senses. He gets up, he walks yeah. to the lake and he sniffs the air. Something's not right. As we all know, Native Americans have heightened senses. They do. <laughs> and and uh, he perceives this strange odor. And it seems to be coming over the lake, so it's probably coming from the area that they're about to canoe into the next day. Yeah. And that's the end of chapter one. Uh, chapter two, it's the next morning. It snowed a bit. Fago and Simpson set off on the canoe on the opposite side of the lake, and Doc and Hank go west, and they leave Punk at the camp to just make sure everything's there, that there's food. That's kind of his job. So he does a little fishing. Maybe some pottery, <laughs> a little sewing. I don't well, know. Defago and Simpson are having a good time. It's a long trip crossing the lake to get out there. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of fall into that easy report that men have when they're working together. It's no longer the guide and the guy who's paying him. No. I think Defago doesn't even call him Mr. anymore. He just says, hey, Simpson, or, you know, yeah. they become very familiar with each other. Defago's in a really good mood as opposed to his moody, broody kind of thing that's going on. Right, right. And even though he was scared before and there was kind of this mood that was set the night where everybody was feeling a little creeped out and a little worried about things. Mm. He said it kind of melted away. Defago's clearly doing better now. And it's actually Simpson is having a great time because he's really only had experience with Aberdeen. He doesn't know the rest of the world very well, and he certainly hasn't been in unspoiled wilderness like this before. He's really enjoying it, and it's beautiful, and he loves it. But then it's slowly, there's a slow change of mood for him right here, Mm -hmm. where it says the, uh, the huge scale of things somewhat bewildered him. Yeah, It was one thing to hear about primeval forests, but quite another to see them. You know, it's that scale that affects him. There's a great line here. It says, now that he was about to plunge beyond even the fringe of wilderness where they were camped into the virgin heart of uninhabited regions as vast as Europe itself. Yeah. You ever been struck by that before? I mean, when you're going somewhere and you go, oh, my God, I mean, I could walk for a year and still be stuck in this. There is no civilization around at all. I have felt that, even though I probably haven't ever really been there. I've never been in a wilderness quite like this before, but I've been in some fairly large woods by my perspective and felt Mm -hmm. like, wow, this is huge. And I can't like I'm looking and I as far as I can see is woods. That's yeah, that's great. I mean, but these guys, I mean, they just they're really in. Huge, insignificant woods. And this affects Simpson and he starts to feel it and bothers him. And it kind of brings back that mood of foreboding that was the night before. And it expresses, I think, what is at the heart of this entire story, which is that feeling of insignificance in in the face of unspoiled nature. 
Yeah. And that powerlessness he begins to feel as they're crossing. I definitely feel that whenever I'm flying to or from Illinois to California, mm-hmm. when you have to cross east of the Mississippi is pretty civilized in the United States. As you go west, there are these huge tracts of land where there's nothing yeah. that you fly over. And all, that fills me with awe somewhat sometimes because, you know, you just look at it and you go, there's one person li- living in this giant spans of land, you know. Yeah. And civilization is nowhere around to, to get to these people, you know, who choose to, to live out there. I don't know. I always get that feeling when I'm looking at that. Yeah. I mean, I cannot believe how large this is. Yeah. I, I feel that at first. And then I realize that I'm in a, a giant metal plane. And, <laughs> and then I realize that man's dominance over his world is complete. Yeah. And I feel better about myself. Yeah. I always, whenever a plane flies overhead, I always look up and go, there's some guy who's mad because he had to watch the Avengers for the third time up up there right now. (laughs) Defago doesn't help this feeling because once they take to shore and they get the canoe up, they turn it over. They sort of put markers in the trees so they can find it again. And then he drops. Defago just almost offhand says, hey, Simpson, you know, if anything happens to me, here are the marks you got to follow to find the canoe and then just strike due west into the sun yeah. and you'll get back to home camp. Once he says that, Simpson's like, if something happens to you? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh no. Like, yeah. that really cements the mood for him where she's like, man, I'm really dependent on this guy because I'm not going to be able to survive out here. I'm a city boy. Like, yeah. this is horrible. What am I doing? This is, you know. <laughs> it's that moment you realize you are absolutely in the hands of another person. Yeah. It's a horrible feeling. Right. And, and that happens a lot if you do guided tours or, you know, if you're going to go into a cave and there's some guide bringing you through the cave. I mean, what if that person disappears? Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> How are you going to get out of here? And I hate that feeling. First yeah. of all, I'm, that's completely hypothetical because I have never gone into a cave because I am scared to death of that kind I, of thing. I know. I've gone into caves and uh, they're they're a little scary. You that descent movie, remember that? That oh uh, man, forget it. They didn't even need cave creatures. I was already freaked out. (laughs) So after they set up camp, uh, Mm -hmm. Defago wanted to go out looking for signs of moose, and he left Simpson there by himself. And to kind of finish putting up the tents and getting the beds ready and setting a fire and doing all that business. Near the camp, there's this whole area where the fire had burned out last year, so it's starting to grow back. But it's still creepy looking. It's all burnt out woods. The writing here is really pretty. It creates this really surreal landscape almost because you have the big burnt swath. And then also the stretch of 50 Island Water, he says, you know, it's about a 15 mile tip to tip lake. It's enormous. There's surely more than 50 islands in it. He says something more like 100. And they float like these ships from some enchanted fairy fleet. So you've got the big burn section, and then you have this sort of grand lake with all of these islands, which seem to have almost a mystical significance to them. Yeah. And he's out there all by himself. Yeah, it really bums him out. (laughs) Freaks him out a little bit. He cooks up some fish, you know, and he's alone, and he kind of starts wondering, gosh, is Defago going to come back? And could I make it back to the other camp on my own if if Mm -hmm. he doesn't come back? And and then Defago comes back. So right. everything's everything's fine. And again, they're in good spirits. They eat. Still, Simpson's feeling that crushing awe. It's still kind of, it, even though they're having a good time, he, it's still underlying everything that's going on in all the conversation. Simpson tries to articulate how he's feeling. These woods, you know, are a bit too big to feel quite at home in. To feel comfortable in, I mean. Huh? Defago says, yeah, that's exactly the, the feeling. You've hit the truth of it. There's no end to them. No end at all. <laughs> he said there's lots found out that and gone plumb to pieces. And they they both kind of just sit on that for a little bit and then mm-hmm. start talking about 
hunting and moose and you know what's going yeah, on more practical matters avoiding that feeling that they're they're both now feeling yeah so simpson you know he just to kind of lift the mood he goes hey defago why don't you sing one of your songs mix it up a little bit let's let's get a little light because it's dark now because the sun is set and they're mm. you know cooking their food and everything and he goes oh yeah you know i'll whip one out and so he starts 99 bottles of beer or something no no right. it's, <laughs> it's a song about kind of he's french yeah it's french so he doesn't know exactly what he's singing about bottles of the, wine it's 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 uh, onions and berets. That's what he sings about. <laughs> By the way, I can't help it, but I you used to be such a big Kids in the Hall fan. Uh-huh. Every time I think of Defago, I think of that sketch where they were the two uh, Canadian trappers that were stealing suits from businessmen. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> I'll put up a link to that video. It always makes me laugh. And then also earlier when they were talking, we were talking about the cannibalism thing where you do it even though there's actually food available to you. Mm-hmm. There was that great Kids in the Hall sketch where the guy was on trial for resorting to cam- cannibalism and you think it's because he was in a plane wreck, but then you find out that it was just because there was a half hour delay and that <laughs> they, he ate all of the rest of the people on the plane. <laughs> that it was, yeah, they didn't even get off the, the runway. Like right. was, <laughs> They were taxiing and he just couldn't handle it. I'll one. put up links to both of those, but both are relevant to the story, I believe. Well, <laughs> tenuously, but sure. Well, Defago's singing his song, and then something, he catches wind of something. Good writing here, too, where he keeps singing, but his eyes go over, and his body tenses up, and he looks over to a different part of the woods, kind of the darker part. He turns white with fear, and he kind of stops singing. He slowly, his song kind of fades out. Again, this feels very cinematic to me. It almost really feels like a movie. Simpson's like, well, what's up? Is it a moose? Do you think a moose is coming? Something going on? And he doesn't say anything. It's... but Simpson feels it as well. He feels like there's this sense of uh, other life, other yeah. life, like something, not just a person, but something outside. Like, I think other is even italicized to give it that. That's very like the willows. There's other life pulsing a- around them. Right. I think Defago tries to say, uh, my song just upset me. He got a little too into singing. Yeah. There's something sad about it, and that's what got him upset. Right. But his stupid excuse for why he's acting weird makes it even worse. <laughs> Simpson knows he's he's lying. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. The evening goes on a little bit longer. Simpson begins to talk himself out of this whole feeling of another and that it was right. silly. And he kind of, in his head, he talks himself out of this. And so he kind of chuckles to himself. And Defago hears him and he's like, whoa, 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 what's funny? What are you laughing about? And he goes, I was just thinking that the woods back home when I lived there in Aberdeen were big. And now right. compared to <laughs> compared to this, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and Defago responds to that with a great... All the same, I wouldn't laugh about it if I was you. There's places in there nobody won't never see into. Nobody knows what lives in there either. Again, not helping the mood. (laughs) 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 So by then, you know, they kind of wrap things up and they're going to to bed and sleep in the tent. And as they're going to sleep, uh, Defago goes, hey, hey, uh, Simpson, did did you, you didn't happen to smell anything, did you? Anything weird? And Simpson goes... No, no, just like the woods, you know. Did you smell anything? And maybe you shouldn't have asked that question. (laughs) The Canadian came closer in the darkness. He shook his head. I guess not, he said, though without overwhelming conviction. It must have just been that song of mine that did it. It's the song they sing in lumber camps and godforsaken places like that when they're scared the Wendigo is somewhere around doing a bit of swift traveling. And what's the Wendigo, pray? Simpson asked quickly, irritated, because again he could not prevent that sudden shiver of the nerves. He knew that he was close upon the man's terror and the cause of it. 
Yet a rushing, passionate curiosity overcame his better judgment and his fear. Defago turned swiftly and looked at him as though he was suddenly about to shriek. His eyes shone, but his mouth was wide open. Yet all he said, or whispered rather, for his voice sank very low, was, It's nothing. Nothing but what those lousy fellers believe when they've been hitting the bottle too long. A sort of great animal that lives up yonder. He jerked his head northwards. Quick as lightning in its tracks and bigger than anything else in the bush and ain't supposed to be very good to look at. That's all. <laughs> okay, DeFargo. Uh, Let's go to bed now. Thanks for yep. that. That's the story I want to hear right before we go to sleep in the middle of the woods. <laughs> Simpson tells himself, oh, that's just some backwoods uh, superstition, and let's get the lantern going. It's time we need to uh, get to bed and sleep if we're going to be up with the sun tomorrow. And they lay down at the end of the second chapter with that in their heads, and that's probably a good place for us to conclude this episode. A great place. You know, hey, we've been running a contest this month. We have. Because CryptoCurium.com, which was one of our sponsors a couple of weeks ago, have a couple of things to give away. There's a Cthulhu idol and a Nyarlathotep idol. And I have them here in my office. And we've asked people to send in photos of their best Lovecraftian poses. And Chris, can you announce our winners? I can announce our winners. Our first place, there is no places. We're just, we have two winners. First is Michael C. And his was the backwood cultist. He had kind of the, the yellow sign painted on his forehead. Really cool yeah, picture. I Very really creepy. like that one. Yeah. And uh, Marilise A. And she did the one where she's a woman kind of going crazy in a chair and then there's a mirror in there and it's a different expression in the mirror than it is on the another great picture we saw a lot of great ones i mean really thank you everybody for sending them in and participating it was just fun to see all that stuff up on facebook yeah. but michael and marilise congratulations i uh, love both of those things i mean i have them framed i have them i actually have small copies in my wallet that i take out and look at lovingly oh wow occasionally yeah that's how much you i really, liked them you do really really love them and we'll be in contact with you and get your address so just uh, be on the lookout for that yeah so we can send you your stuff exactly I also want to let folks know that I'm going to do a mini signing tour with Transreality I will be in Leeds the 5th of October York the 19th of October and Manchester the 26th of October at the Traveling Man stores and that will be from 1 to 3pm those are all Saturdays in Leeds in October the 5th York the 19th Manchester the 26th Look at you. You're such a celebrity. <laughs> Sign in your book. <laughs> well, if you have the uh, chance, go out and see Chris. And speaking of celebrities, thanks again to Andrew Lehman for <sighs> doing our reading. We're going to be doing, I don't know, we'll either do one more episode or two more episodes on the Wendigo. I'm enjoying just talking about the story and the yeah, me and too. The, uh, the mood and the themes in it. So not quite sure if it'll be uh, two or three episodes, but hopefully we'll have Andrew on board the whole time. Absolutely. And I just want to thank our sponsors once again, uh, the Randolph Carter web series, The Dream Cycle of Randolph Carter, and school number six, Girl with a Dark Halo. Just do searches for those on Kickstarter or go to our page and click on the link. And we will be back next week to talk more when to go. Uh, with that, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. 